Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is, These Three Are One, a quote from 1 John. And we're talking about the unity and the trinity in God. And I wanted to explain this a little bit, uh, what we're doing. Some of you may know this and some of you may not. Um, but the origins of this Bible study were that I woke up... Uh, it's strange to say, but I got this inspiration on January 1st of 2009. I woke up first thing in the morning, and all these thoughts were going off in my head. I'd never thought about having a Bible study before. I'd been, um, I'd been starting to study uh, Scripture in a, in a different way, but I, I, I was just had zero thought in doing such a thing. But I had this like three hours of inspiration in the morning, and part of what was coming to me... Let's see if I can illustrate this on the chart here a little bit. Was that um, it was sort of a contrast between Swedenborgian teachings and uh, like mainstream Christianity kind of thing, and just painting with a broad brush. And so one of the points of contrast that struck me that that morning, and that was I was sort of the idea was okay. There are five topics here. Here are these five. Topics and so topic number one is the unity and trinity in God and the idea was that you have two different views I might call this Mainstream. I don't know what to call it, you know something like that and then you have uh, Let's call it new church something like that Swedenborgianism and um, So on the mainstream side of Christianity you'll hear a lot that there is a Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit, and these are three separate persons, and that some believe that the Son was always, you know, it's an eternal Son of God, born from eternity. These three are a trinity of persons, and whereas Swedenborg says that these three are are one, as we just heard in that scripture, they're one within the other, and we'll talk about that some more. But interestingly, this side, the mainstream side, for those of you just getting the audio, was that there is um, just one thing you need for salvation, which is faith. Uh, you know, what do you need for salvation? Just one thing. Whereas on this side, there were three things. Uh, that you need. In effect, you need faith, you need charity or goodwill toward your neighbor, and you need use. Uh, so the fact that they that everybody has their three and their one, they just had the wrong three and the wrong one. You see what I'm saying? And so that was very striking to me, and I even had someone make up sort of a handout for the first round of the Bible study that we did that had these things kind of contrasting. The five topics were, number one, the unity and trinity in God. How does that thing work and compare and contrast these different views? Number two, the nature and purpose of the first coming. Compare and contrast these views. You know, especially like what did Jesus' death do, what did his life do, and so on. Number three, uh, the nature and purpose of the second coming. What, what's going on with that? Number four, the nature of scripture. And number five, the means of salvation. You know, what do you need to be saved? So if you look at our website, spiritandlifebiblestudy.com, going back to the very beginning, uh, with one exception, 
every single, like we're up to 330 something, we're approaching 340 episodes now. I think this is 338 tonight. Uh, they all have a topic. They're listed on one of those five. You know, so it doesn't matter. You, you know, to get the Bible study, you don't need to know that. But it's of interest to me that that was part of the original structure was that it's all in these five things, compare and contrast. Now, interestingly, uh, what I started doing at the beginning because I realized, well, I should go through these, but really to talk about it, even though it's one is unity, two first coming, three is second coming, four is the word, and five is salvation, you really can't talk about one, two, three, or five without talking about four first. So what I did was I would take, four, meaning the word, you, you know, understanding like what the word is and how, that it's, how it speaks is crucial. So we'd have four first, and then one, two, three, five, four, and then one, two, three, five. And I do several weeks um, on each topic. And so we started on July 28th, 2010, and we did this uh, rotation right through to August of 2014. So just over four years, we were just rotating in exactly, we hardly ever departed from that order. Four, one, two, three, five, four, one, two, three, five. And uh, when we came around one time to to doing topic number one again, just oddly, I felt like, I don't know, I've already done this, I don't know what else to say, and um, you know, and so I felt like, okay, now we're allowed to just take any of, you know, we sort of laid that groundwork, now we can take them in any order. So I was shocked to see when I looked recently that the last time we specifically did something with the topic of the unity and trinity was May 1st, 2013, it was five years ago, <laughs> was the last time. I, I, it's not that we haven't touched on that in all the Bible studies in one way or another, but uh, it's been a while. And so what I thought I'd do tonight is sort of summarize some of that body of teaching from years ago about the Trinity and the unity. So if you care to join me for that journey, good friends, let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. You are the word made flesh. Help us, Lord, as we open the pages of your word and seek to understand you. Amen. Sending love and greetings out to all of you who are getting the audio podcast and out there in internet land and here in the room. Thank you so much for coming to talk about these little light fair about the unity and trinity of and God. So there are, again, painting with a, just a hugely broad brush, there are monotheistic religions like Judaism, Islam, and so on. And then you, it seems like most religions fall into a couple of camps. You're either monotheistic or you're polyth- polytheistic, like the Hinduism and, and so on. Um, where did Christianity get this three thing? Like people just weren't doing three before. So this three thing was, was weird. You know, you, you either had one or you had a whole ton of them and one is the God of the harvest and another one's the God of this and that and, and uh, you know, sickness and health or something. Um, but uh, where do you get three? Uh, that was odd. That the, How did Christianity come up with that? So let's look at some scriptures where it, it got that and ponder this issue of the Trinity and the unity. 
let's uh, start actually almost all the way to the right in your Bibles toward Revelation. I want to, if you back up from Revelation and go to 1 John chapter 5, that's where this phrase, these three are one, comes from. And we'll talk about that a little bit here. 1 John. 1 John. Not Jude. 1 John chapter 5. Chapter 5. From the top. And now let's read um, uh, verses 7 and 8. How about that? For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. There's our scripture there. These three are one. So what were they again? The Father the Word and the Holy Spirit. Interesting. The Father, it didn't say Son, it said the Word instead of Son, didn't it? Father, the Word, and, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And then go on, what do we get in verse 8 there? And there are three that bear witness on earth. Oh, now where was the first one? The first one was in heaven. In heaven. Oh, okay. So you got Father. in heaven, and then you got on earth. Okay, in heaven, Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Go on. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Oh, they agree as one. Hmm. So are one and agree as one seem like they're different things. Like in heaven, they are one. But these things on earth agree as one. But those are kind of contrast. I mean, it's similar, it's parallel, uh, but they're not, it didn't say exactly the same thing. It's not that they are one, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So uh, you have a heavenly level where these three are one, and you have this earthly level where these three agree as one. A lot of people have pondered how on earth it could work that you would have a, a because you do read, we'll read one in a moment that's very much like this, that talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, or you, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. So what's going on with these three? Is God one or is God three? And we're already sort of mathematically challenged here by saying, well, these three are one. Well, what does that mean? Why have three in the sentence or why have one? They both got some explaining to do, if you see what I mean. And uh, this particular passage is interesting because uh, when, you know, forever this has been part of the Bible, uh, but when people started, to, you know, a couple hundred years ago to do all this manuscript research, they found that this passage wasn't actually in there, or the first part of it wasn't in there. And if you look in some modern Bibles, it'll just say things like, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three agree as one. It skips all that these three are one. You, that's not even in there. So, and that business of heaven and earth, like that whole thing doesn't come across, which is curious. And yet Swedenborg cites this passage, even though he often doesn't quote from the epistles, he does in True Christianity, where he's discussing the Trinity in chapter 3, second part there, and in volume 1. And he cites this passage and says, look, this clearly teaches a Trinity. You know, this is important. There's a Trinity. And, and he's, so he cites this passage and doesn't say, oh, this passage is not legit. 
Um, okay, let's go to Matthew 28. We've got so many things to say, but Matthew uh, in the New Testament there, 28. We're going to the very last three verses of the whole thing. This is when Jesus is resurrected and he comes to his disciples. There's a very, very important passage to Swedenborg. Let's just read these last three verses there. Which starts with what? I'm sorry, 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Yes, in the old King James, all power has been given to me. All authority, same deal, right. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes. Okay. So that middle part, that verse 19 is again, I mean, that's the one, it's actually the only passage in all of scripture that actually says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the only place Ah. that you actually see all three of those right there side by side. But it's a pretty prominent moment. Jesus is resurrected. He comes back to his disciples and here's his kind of parting words listen you know you got to baptize all these people in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit but what's interesting uh, when you start to analyze it look at it interestingly this very passage is the one that swedenborg uses to say that jesus is the one god of heaven and earth a phrase that i use a lot in prayers and stuff uh, well, wait a minute. This is the famous Father, Son, and Holy Spirit passage. How can you say Jesus is the one God of heaven and earth? Well, it's because of verse 18. All power, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So if there were three separate gods, the Father has no power in heaven. Father has no power on earth. The Holy Spirit has no power in heaven. Father, the Holy Spirit has no power on earth. Why bother with them? All this power has been given to Jesus. So Wow, remarkable. And then it says the thing about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in that name. And uh, partly what I'm doing tonight is that if you went back through those Bible studies that have that number one, topic number one on them, the Trinity and Unity, we go way into all this. We spend a whole night on this Matthew 28 and 18 and everything. Um, But just some things that I'll point out here. What does it say in verse 20? What are the pronouns? I have commanded you. I have commanded you, yes. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Not we. There's not a we there. It's an I. So I have all power in heaven and on earth. Go out and baptize people in these three names. And I'm with you always. It doesn't say we. It says I am. You know, singular pronoun. And one little side detail that I find fascinating is that we have... Uh, after the Gospel of John there, you find the whole book of Acts where you see the early Christian church being built and there are tons of baptizing going on. And these disciples who heard him say this, never, ever, 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 ever baptize anybody in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They never do it. Huh. So he told them. Very clear. What's that? Do they say other words? Yeah, in the name of Jesus. Period. Name of Jesus. They never, ever baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Clear instructions, and they go out. Now, are they violating that? Or is Jesus 
the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, if Jesus is the name of all three, if it's like this, the Father's within the Son, the Son's within the Holy Spirit, these three are one, uh, then they're doing it. They're doing it right. Otherwise, they're doing it wrong. So anyway, there's just interesting things uh, to look at there in terms of the three and the one. Um, uh, another example of the kind of things that we've covered in those, in those Trinity topics before is this wonderful thing. If you go to the left-hand side of your Bible all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out in the wilderness and he's just minding his own business and he sees his burning bush. And God appears to him. And when he asks God what his name is, what does he say in verse 14, Exodus 3, 14? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yes. And we did a Bible study back in the day. Let's, let's go back to, uh, let's go to the Gospel of John now. There's just a little sampling, a little taste, you know. But John chapter 8, the very end of that chapter, let's go to verses 57 and 58. Right, let's start at 56, 56 to 58. How about that? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Says Jesus. Jesus is talking, talking to uh, the Jews, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And what do they say? Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Uh-huh. That's what Before Jesus said. And in fact, there's all sorts of passages. We had a lot of fun with this in one Bible study where he says, I am the bread of life. I am, you know, e- even when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, they say to him, are you so-and-so? And he says, I am. And they all fall back and crash to the ground. Uh, so is Jesus separate from God? He's using God's name. He's got all the power, you know, uh, so there's all these I am passages that support this idea. No, there's actually a oneness there. Let's go to the middle of your Bible to Isaiah, which is probably the most potent part of Scripture to express this. And we did another Bible study all about this. Uh, start at chapter 40. Well, it really goes from 42 on, but let's jump into 43, verse 11. There, it goes on for chapters in here, 43. 42, 43, 44, 45, uh, 46, I think it's in 48, and then there's some toward the end of Isaiah, where again and again and again and again, it keeps saying, I am God and there is no other. There's no other God except for me. I'm the only one. I'm it. Uh, Look at 43, 11. Chapter 48. Okay, sorry. Uh, 43, 11. I, even I, am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Huh. And the Lord there is Jehovah, like it's Yahweh, or uh, it's the Old Testament God. He says, I'm the Lord, and there's no Savior except except for me. 
So if there was already a, a son of God up in heaven, he's being seriously dissed by this little interchange because he's saying, I, I don't, never met him. If there is one, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> and uh, look at 44 verse 8. 44 8. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if there's another God up there somewhere, he hasn't met him yet. And I don't know how, if you're omnipresent, how, how you don't meet somebody. Um, 45, verses 5 and 6. It's all through here. I wish we could go through all of them. They're mm -hmm. just awesome. But. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Yeah. So this idea of a separate person in the Godhead who existed from eternity is really hard to maintain in the face of Isaiah, all those passages. Let's look at another Isaiah one. Let's go back to Isaiah 9, which to me is just one of the strongest pieces of evidence. Isaiah 9, verse 6, this famous uh, prophecy of the Lord's coming. Nobody could oh, yeah. mistake from the beginning of this verse that it's talking about the Messiah or the Son that's going to be born into the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you see that his name being the Everlasting Father is a huge error if he's not the Everlasting Father. You know, like why would you have a son and name him the Everlasting Father? the son's going to be born into the world and his name is going to be the everlasting father and here he comes into the world and he's saying all this I am you know that's who I, I, I am uh, so uh, all these passages to me argue for uh, on the side of oneness um, okay like okay let's go to John the gospel of John there's a bunch of these different things but let's go to John chapter 14 well, while we're in John, why don't we do 10, verse 30 first, so John 10, verse 30. Then the Jews took up stone. No, that's not it. I and my Father are one. There you go. Quite a short verse. Not too much of a mouthful. I and my Father are one. Okay, these three are one. So that's one. So don't know what that means, but he says they are one. And then he clarifies a bit more. Look at 14... Um, uh, let's start at uh, verse 7 there. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Hmm. Go on. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Yeah, that's right. He's been talking about this father. He's been praying to this father just like, okay, come on, you know, show him to us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? And it doesn't say you've not known him. He says, Me. He says, Show me the Father. He said, I've been with you so long, you don't recognize me? My name is the Everlasting Father. I'm the I Am. 
Who do you think I am? Go on. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? That's right. And a little bit later in that very chapter, uh, let's hear about the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 and following there. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so this is the spirit of truth of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, or the helper that's going to come eventually. And then what does he say in verse 18? I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will, doesn't say he will come to you. I will. He's, he's the Holy Spirit. He's the Father. He's also the Holy Spirit. More uh, evidence that he's the Holy Spirit is found in Revelation uh, chapter chapters 2 and 3, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord appears and it's very clearly Him because He says things like, I'm the one who lives and was dead and I'm alive forevermore. You know, it's obviously Jesus. And it says at the very beginning of Revelation 1.1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's who this is. So then Jesus goes and dictates these seven letters to the churches, and at the end of every letter, look at 2 verse 7, what does it say? Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah. Well, this is a letter from Jesus to the churches, and he signs it, the Spirit. <laughs> right? So, sort of dissing the Spirit, if, if the Spirit's supposed to be a separate person, and back in John, we didn't read it there, but in John 14, it says, Jesus says, I'll send you the spirit of truth and he will tell you everything. He will tell you all my truth kind of, you know, he'll, he'll tell you what I, what I said. He won't tell you his own thing. He'll tell you what I said. And then he says, I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Uh, so these are different sort of arguments. Uh, they're a little more subtle arguments, but look at Revelation chapter 4. Uh, verse 2, you have this throne in heaven. And someone who's sitting on the throne. Four two. Immediately as I was in the spirit, uh, sorry, immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And it describes the one who's sitting on the throne and everybody's worshiping him. And then there comes this uh, lamb in five verse six. And where is the lamb exactly? And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Yeah, so this is the lamb. So people thought, oh, see, the one sitting on the throne is the father. The lamb is the son. But can't they even get him his own throne? He's in the midst of the father's throne. Why? Can't they get him his own throne? Can't they afford another throne? Why is he? There's only one throne up there and he's in the middle of that throne. Because they are one. You know, there's, there's a oneness there. Okay, uh, you know. Uh, okay. Uh, let's do things like, um, I don't know, let's look at Second Corinthians. Okay, so let's go back toward the Gospels. If you go from the Gospel side, you go through Romans and then get to the Corinthians. I want to go to Second Corinthians 5. Don't I, dear reader? I think that's where I want Probably. to go. Probably. Ah, yes. 
5 verses 18 to 21. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. See, there's sort of a rumor going around about this father and son business that the reason the son had to come into the world was because the father was so mad at the human race. So the son came to reconcile the father to the human race, soften him up, make him feel sorry. When he sees the blood, he'll, he'll be sad and then he'll regret what he did and he'll start saving the human race again. But let's read that again carefully there, dear reader. Okay. What was that? Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Oh, wait. By what? Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Okay, so, wait. We were the ones who needed reconciling. It doesn't say anything about God being reconciled. We needed reconciling. God reconciled us to himself through through Jesus. So Jesus didn't do something to someone else to make someone else feel better about us. God did this, you know, uh, through Jesus Christ, and we were the ones who needed reconciling. Let's go on a little bit there, 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the oh. world to himself. He was in him? Interesting, God he was in him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's right. Not yeah, recon it wasn't, he wasn't reconciling God to the world, and Jesus wasn't reconciling somebody else who was called God. God was reconciling the world to himself. That, that's what happened there. That's probably in the interest of time. Oh, maybe we'll, but that's an interesting passage right there. Okay. Um, oh, we're jumping around a little bit. Let's go back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Should have done it when we were there. Should have thought of this before you left home. John 4, verse... Uh, let's see, what do we want here? Verse, verse uh, they're talking about where to worship. Do you worship at Jerusalem? Where do you worship the Father? And he's having this conversation with this woman. And then verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so God equals spirit. Jesus equals the spirit who's writing the letters. The Father, the Son's name is the everlasting Father. You know, you can draw equal signs between all these, all these things with these different passages. Okay, oh, let's go to the right and go through First and Second Corinthians... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians to Colossians. Okay. This is one of Swedenborg's absolute all-time favorite passages in the um, epistles. Colossians 2 verse 9. It's talking about Christ. It's just mentioned Christ at the end of verse 8. And then what does it say about him in verse 9? For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yes. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ. You're not talking about separate people. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. So it's all embodied in Christ. All that divinity is right there. Not a separate person. It's all right there. 
Uh, similarly, if you turn to the right and go to Hebrews, you go through a bunch of things that start with a T and then go to Hebrews chapter 1. It's talking those first couple of verses about the Son. And, uh, it, well, it, God is the subject at first and then has in this last day spoken to us by His Son. So you've got two subjects, God and the Son. And in verse 3, what do we have there? Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Oh, so Jesus is the express image of God's person. He's not a separate person. He's the express image of God's person. That, that's... That's who that is there. Okay, that's lucky. Um, so, yes, 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 yes. And uh, there's one, okay, let's just take a couple of rational arguments as well. Here's one. Okay, we're in Hebrews, right? Let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 2. It's talking about Jesus and what he went through here. And this is just so familiar. We could have picked any one of scores of passages. But what's at the end of 12 verse 2 in Hebrews there? Um, we might as well read the, the whole verse. Okay. It's a great verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there he's not in the midst of the throne. There he's on the right hand of the throne of God. And there's a lot of passages about him being on the right hand. The right hand, the right hand, the right hand. So, you know, you'll see me, doesn't he say to Pontius Pilate or something, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven um, and, and it mentions the right hand. Um, so here's a little question. So a lot of people thought, well, he must be separate because he's at the right hand. But so, if Jesus is on the right hand of God, then God must be on the left hand of Jesus. If it's just physical. If Jesus is on the right hand of God, then God's got to be to his left. Like, you're Jesus. Oh, here's God to my left, right? So, shouldn't say right. I should say correct. Correct. Thank you. So, uh, look at Matthew 25. So go to the left and go back to the Gospel of Matthew 25, where we see this story that Jesus tells us about himself, the Son of Man, when he comes in glory. And 31 to 33, let's just read those there. Parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. So this is the Son. That's great. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Oh, he'll sit on the throne of his glory. Is that a separate throne? Is he in the midst of the throne or is he at the right hand of the throne? Whose throne? But anyway, go on. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one ah. from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Okay, where is he going to place people? And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. So you mean the is God a goat? What is God to his... It didn't say anything about God being in there. So the sheep are on the right hand, but the goats are on the... You know, well, wait a minute. Maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. You know, we're thinking about it too concretely that when he's there, it's just sheep go on the right. And it explains that the sheep are people who treated other people well. 
goats are people who knew that they should be treating that people that way, but they didn't. And they go on the left. Left is bad in Scripture. Left is, left is generally a bad thing. So God wouldn't be on the left of anything. Right hand means power. Um, okay, so let's uh, attempt to reconcile some of the most difficult mysteries in history. <laughs> okay, so something that Swedenborg says that I think is a really wonderful thing and actually comes right out of some of the ancient creeds is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like the soul, the body, and the activity or usefulness of the products of a human being. So if you have someone, you have a, a mind, like you know, when your body's asleep, your mind is off dreaming or whatever. You have a separate mind, you have a separate body, and then there's the things that you do. So when someone leaves you a little note and you see it in their handwriting or something, even if they've already passed away or something, like, you, oh, that's so them, it captures them, right? Those are three parts. Because in Genesis 1, we don't have to go there and read it, but it states very clearly in 126 that we're all, isn't it 126? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Yeah, we're in the image and likeness of God. So how are we three? Like, whatever God is, we must look the same. Now, remember, it said these three are one, and then there was three that agree as one. Now, you can get any Three people, three people can agree as one, but that's different than being one. But our spirit and our body and the things that we do, they, that's, that's one. There's no division. It's not like your hand ever slaps your spirit, says, I'm so mad at you. Or, you, know, uh, the, the, you can have different levels of yourself that fight with each other. That is good fun. And scripture talks about that in Romans 7. <laughs> but... You're, you're one. You've got one will. You've got one understanding. It comes down into actions. The body's working together and to do stuff in this world. And that's the picture. So a shocking thing that Swedenborg says in this chapter in True Christianity about the Trinity is that there was not always a Trinity. Part of what was wrong with this idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever is that it's not true. That's a minor problem that it suffers from. Uh, it wasn't that way. You always had the Father, you know, the divine uh, as he is in himself has always existed, but the Son was born in time. Unto us a Son is given. You know, that didn't, that, he wasn't already there from beginning. What confuses everybody is that there are all these teachings about the Father, I mean, of the Son or Jesus being involved in creation by the Word of the Lord where the heavens made and, and that kind of thing. Statements in John 1 about creation, that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So they thought, oh, well, there must have been a son all at the beginning uh, that was there from eternity. But Swedenborg says, no, there's always been divine love. There's always been divine truth. But that human body was born just like our body is born. He was born in time. And until then, there wasn't this threeness. So the other point that I'm trying to make here, rather clumsily in my own estimation, is that if there's, if there's three, then the burden of proof is on explaining all these oneness passages. And so people have tried to do that in various different ways. And what they generally say is, well, there are three, and they have a similar quality of divinity. 
How about that? I mean, they're three divine beings. So they have a similar quality of divinity. The problem with that is that it's illogical. Like, let's say, what are the qualities of God? Well, you might say omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. Well, omnipotence means all power. Omniscience means all knowing. Omnipresence means being everywhere. How can you divide that? So each one would only have a third of it. I'm a third omnipotent. I'm, I'm third potent. You know? Well, nobody said that God is third potent or third shints or third prison or something. You know, um, the qualities of God are omnipresent and you can't divide it where it's, it, it's infinite. You can't. Oh, oh, it's infinite. Okay, let's cut her in half. <laughs> Good luck finding half of infinite. You know, you're, you're not going to, you can't cut it in half. Can't cut it in thirds. You're not going to be able to do it. It's illogical to think that that quality of the divine is divisible. And so much in Scripture, nothing ever says, oh, yeah, I'm Jesus and I have a third of the, you know, a third of the power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You know, he doesn't say that uh, because those are indivisible qualities. So, okay, then you say, okay, all right, you convinced me, you've been yelling for the last 45 minutes. Okay, all right. They're one. Why then all this talk about the three? You know, if they're so one, why are you going on and on about the three? Why would Jesus say baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Why say that if they're all so one? You know, there are some people who try to get the oneness of God by saying, I think this is called modalism, where you say, well, the Father existed, but as soon as the Son was born, the Father didn't exist anymore. It was only the Son. And then after the Son died, then it was only the Holy Spirit. You didn't have the Son anymore. So you sort of, okay, it's one, but they sort of shifted. There were three different aspects over time. Swedenborg says, no. That's his short answer to that. <laughs> and then um, there's also views that just, you know, there's just unitary or like Jesus was just a fabulous human being. He's really excellent, really wonderful, wonderful guy, but had nothing to do with God. So why is he saying, I am? Why is he saying, I am the light of the world and I'm going to come back in the clouds of heaven? You know, why is he saying all that? Is he out of his mind? Uh, no, he actually is God. That's who was born into the world. Doesn't it say that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us? Like that's, that's didn't say one of the three gods. One of the three gods, the prophecies, the ancient prophecies never said, one of the three gods shall visit the earth one day. It'd be very exciting for you all. And the thing is, if there are three gods, then you can play one against the other, right? You can, okay, let's play Pharaoh's one. Well, mom said I could, you know? So come on, dad. Yeah. You just, just play one of them against each other. But, but if that's one god, uh, that's a very different situation. So then, okay, let's say there is one god. Why the three? Why talk about the three? Well, Swedenborg's explanation in brief, and as I say, I go into it in a lot more detail, in all those early Bible studies, we did a lot on this back in the day, um, is that God had a, a, diffi a difficult job. The human race, the human race used to be sweethearts. They used to be lovely, lovely sweethearts. And they loved God and hardly even thought of themselves as humans. Just like, it's all about God and I love God. So it's all love. It's just wonderful. Over time, we figured out how to be materialistic and disgusting. This was our great achievement. And we move farther and farther away from God 
you know, and into a more and more hellish and materialistic and corporeal state. So God's problem was not how to come down and deal with us. His problem was how to deal with us without nuking us off the face of the planet. He had to be, it had to be a safe contact. You know, if you said, okay, I'm going to bring the sun down to the earth and just scrub that out. You know how good sunlight is. Oh, the earth got moldy. Let's bring the sun over here and just scrub that up a little bit. Well, you just cook it long before the sun got near. How are you going to take a little bit of that sun and get it down there to deal with the mold without cooking the whole thing? You need that father, that infinite God, to be born in a human form, in a frail human form that sort of acted as a transformer, bringing all that energy down to a safe level. And through that method, then all that divinity was able to be present on that lowest level where everybody was living more and more, on that outermost. So, hey, now God can be close to people, God with us. That's why be born in the flesh. And why be resurrected with the flesh is because he was able to transform that flesh and make it divine. That's why he disappeared from the tomb. He was born like an ordinary baby, did not die like an ordinary person. You know, that was a different way to die. Whew, everything's gone in the tomb because it all became divine. And then he sends out the Holy Spirit, which is himself. He is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just his presence with everybody as a result of all this. So if you get rid of the three, you don't understand how God was born in the flesh and then became so accessible to us. You lose the accessibility piece, I think, if, if you don't have the three. So the Trinity is very important. Swedenborg would be horrified if you said, Swedenborg, you don't believe in the Trinity. You'd go, oh, I do so. I just don't believe it's three separate persons. It's one person. There's a Trinity within one person, just as there's a Trinity within each of us. We're in the image and likeness of God. We function the same way. We have this soul. The soul shapes the body and the womb. Then we come into this world and we do stuff. That's our story, briefly put. You can fit it on a tombstone, right? And then... Uh, <laughs> So that's what, that's what the Lord did. That's what the Trinity is about. That's how there is both a unity and a Trinity. And why the Trinity is important, that's why the Son is praying to the Father, because the, the difference between the Son and the Father was very important. When he was younger, he was half human, half divine, you know? And that was a separate thing that hadn't been done before. So that second person was really important. If you miss that, you miss a whole huge thing. Or if you think he was just human, you don't get what was going on. Uh, it might seem a trivial thing for Christianity to understand Christ, but I feel that it's important. I think it would be good for Christianity to understand Christ a little better than it does. You know, you know, it seems important, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like every other concept would cascade down from that concept? Wouldn't that concept shape everything about who you are, what you do, how you worship your God, what you're loving? It seems kind of important to have a decent sense of that. So I've gone whipping through all, you know, all, these, all these deep things rather badly, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I do hope that you'll, you know, if you get a chance, look back at some of those episodes on spiritandlifebiblestudy.com and look for the ones that say topic number one, unity and trinity, or, or I think a lot of them just say unity. 
but that's what they're about. They give you more of the specifics than I could give you here tonight. There's a very fun episode on November the 9th of 2011 that was all about a person with a helmet. I can hardly remember it, but it was this whole crazy analogy about trying to explain what Jesus was doing coming down into the world and to bring that divine power down in a safe way and, and, and all that. And there was also one back there about Samson bound, which was cool, and about a diver working his way up as he's welding this thing. Um, the more he did the welds, the lighter he got. So he had to start at the bottom. You know, when God came down in human form, he had to fix some of the bottom stuff first, and then he worked his way up. And... Um, other cool things like that. Um, so, there we have resolved Christianity. It wasn't that hard. And um, so, God is one. One of Swedenborg's things that he says right at the beginning of true Christianity is that God is one in whom there is a divine trinity. You know, there's one person who has this threeness. That's why there's all this threeness talk in Scripture. The threeness is really important. It's just when people took that and split it into three separate people, it went off the rails because then all of a sudden, God the Father is kind of detestable and angry and horrible and you like Jesus, but you don't, you're hoping He can sort of protect you from the Father. But, you know, and you don't know what the Holy Spirit is. Is that a dove or is that a person or something? I don't know what. And uh, you get rather a confused picture. And Swedenborg says that a lot of people in his day were rolling into the other world with very confused mental images. And I got a little warning for you, friends, here. It says it in Luke 12. It's an honest world after death. And what we think is sort of plays on a movie around your head all the time. And one of the first things they look at is, hmm, what sort of images do you have of God? And if you got some kooky image of someone sitting on the throne and there's Jesus pleading with them and you're sending off the Holy Spirit to do the work or something like that, it's not great. See if you can replace that while you're still alive in this world. That might, that might pave the way for you in the other one. They'll give you every chance to swap out some better ideas. But just, you know, why not get ahead of the game and, and, and start now try to get some more of the oneness of God in your mind. Because it's, it's really, really important understanding who God is. And the bottom line to me is that this God, the God that Swedenborg describes, this way of understanding Scripture, and man, to me, when you open it up, you start, wow, you see, it makes so much sense. Otherwise, you just got this, what? How, is, how can God be the Spirit? And how, which one is on the throne? And which one's the Lamb? And what's going on? Why does it say all that? Uh, this reconciles, I'm not saying it's easy, but, but it is something that, that you can really see uh, some sense in after a while. And the bottom line is that it's all about God being accessible. That's the whole point of the Trinity, is that the Lord, when you are lying there in bed at night, having thoughts in your mind, the Lord is absolutely present. He's able to be entirely present with you. He's able to be entirely present with you in every moment when you, when you think you're completely alone or in the worst day of your life or going through sickness or what, whatever it is. The Lord is absolutely able to be present with you and he's able to be present with everybody whether they know that or not because he went through this. But it's sort of fun for him to have at least a few people who kind of know what's going on. Say, oh, that's you, you know. 
Even Swedenborg, when he started to have his spiritual experiences, he still kind of thought, he thought Jesus was very, very special, but he still kind of thought maybe he was going to meet someone else at some point up there, you know, and <laughs> eventually he realized, oh, wait, that's you, isn't it? You're the whole story. You are the one God. You meant it when you said, all power has been given to me. He didn't have it when he was in the cradle. Jesus had to go through his whole human process, but in time, all power was given to him. He became one with God and made this whole new level of accessibility possible. So there's nowhere in the lowest hell or anywhere in this physical universe that you can go to get away from the Lord. He, he is intensely present. He's present with the angels, which is why it says that the sun will shine like seven days and the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. That was a prediction of how great it is with the Lord being so much more present now. And uh, I, I don't have a cute punchline. <laughs> I, I don't have an end. There is no end. The Trinity That's and the true. unity. The end. Thank you very much, <laughs> friends. Shall we close with a prayer? <laughs> Just ran out of time before I came up with a punchline. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray to you because you are the express image of all that divine omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. You are the visible God, a God that we can see in our mind's eye, a God that we can interact with, a God that can touch us here in our earthly lives. You are the bridge between the heavens and this world. You are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord God. Please help us as we open the pages of your word to get a better and better understanding of you, to see your divine love, your divine truth, your glory, your power in the clouds of Scripture. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. This stuff makes more and more sense when you do.